Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. A good theology for eschatology. You need that. And that's something else that was very important for Paul to share with the Thessalonian church. They had some confusions. They had questions about the end times. Don't we all? I've got all kinds of questions about the end times. I've got more questions than I have answers. First, I want to share with you, as I'm once again going to dispense with a preliminary reading of any scripture passages, I'm going to just dive into this, assuming you have some sort of an overall working knowledge of these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians. And I will read some scriptures along the way throughout the sermon. But I want to suggest to you that there are some things you know that you don't know. That's really important. Know what you don't know. And don't try and, and uh, wing your way when you don't know. And just taking this from, uh, from these two letters, the first thing I want to suggest to you that you should know that you don't know is the timing of his coming. Now, Greek word scholars and students use uh, to refer to the second coming of Jesus. They commonly still do refer to the second coming of Jesus by a Greek word, parousia. And the word is found often in Paul's writings. And if you have my notes, there are some scripture references there. In, just in the book of Thessalonians alone, Paul used that word, parousia, in the second chapter, third chapter, fourth chapter, fifth chapter. And go to the fourth chapter, and I'll show you one of those passages where he uses that according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left under the coming of the Lord to coming of the Lord, the parousia of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's just an example of where Paul uses that Greek word. Now, while we can and should know about his coming, it's very important to us. We just don't know when it's going to be. Date setters, avoid them like the plague. They don't know what they're talking about. They're never to be trusted. The question is often asked if Paul thoroughly expected the coming of the Lord in his time. Well, when we read this, that's a valid question because the language he uses indicates, well, maybe he was expecting it before he died. But I, I think that probably what we would be better to say is Paul <clears throat> knew it could happen in his lifetime. But I don't think Paul was preaching it's going to happen in my lifetime. So Paul was setting an example of living an expecting life. 
We just don't know for sure what Paul thought about the actual timing of it. But it was ready. And we should be too. And I'll come back to that in just a little bit. The, the second thing I want to suggest to you that you should know that you do not know is we don't understand how all the end time events, eschatological events, the end time events relate to one another. Unless we have a prophecy teacher with his chart come in. And then it must be because that's what the church says. But we really don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just an effort for somebody to try and put a graph on it and say, we, what we believe, this is how we graph this out. But how does the parousia relate to a phrase that Paul uses, the day of the Lord? Now, that's a, that has in time significance. But the mystery for us is how does the coming, the parousia, relate to the day of the Lord? And prophecy teachers... They try to give you a picture and tie all those things together. But the interesting thing is, Paul didn't tell us. He dropped these little hints, and we have to take these bits and pieces and try and sew them together and make sense out of it. That's, that's just something that you know you don't know. How does the tribulation relate to both of those events? We have theories, but Paul didn't tell us. He just threw these terms around. Then we have another one that Certainly you should know that you don't know. Paul talked about the man of lawlessness. Now, we, I think we probably took a vote today. Who is the man of lawlessness? Who is that wicked? Then shall that wicked be revealed. And then uh, Satan's wicked, isn't he? I mean, that would be a, that would be a, a legitimate guess. When he, and that's all Paul says. Uh, many have put that in the context of the end times and, and decided... Maybe that would be Antichrist. Uh, that's another possibility. But isn't it interesting that all Paul did was just talk about that wicked? And, of course, we could say the wicked one, or that wicked with a capital W. That wicked, then shall that wicked be revealed who the Lord shall destroy with the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. That wicked. So Paul's writing this letter to the Thessalonians, and he says in this cryptic way that then shall that wicked be revealed. And you, you've got to believe that Paul believed that those people who read his letter understood what he was saying. I believe, and I feel like, oh, Paul, why didn't you write it so the rest of us could understand? Because something was lost in the passing of time that those people understood it, but they didn't tell us what they understood, so we're left to try and decipher this. So we've got possibilities of who the wicked is. It probably, probably refers to Antichrist, because it, that's the language is that whom the Lord should destroy with the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming seems to relate to Armageddon. But why didn't Paul just say that? Did he really assume that everybody, uh, whoever read his letter, was going to thoroughly understand it? Well, maybe he did assume that. Or maybe he didn't uh, even know his letter would be that widely read or, the, or this long preserved. And here's another one that you know, you should know today that you don't know. Who is the restrainer, the hinderer of lawlessness? For he that, uh, the King James Version, he that now letteth will let, which is really awkward language. What's let? You know, it's when the, actually the, the word means to, who restrains, who holds a, the hinderer of lawlessness. So in the King James, he that now letteth will let until he 
uh, be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Now there's something that if the original readers of the, la of the uh, letters understood that, that completely escapes us. Who is, as we go back to translate letteth, I mean take, do it better, letteth, who is this hinderer of lawlessness that he talks about? He that hinders lawlessness will continue to hinder lawlessness until he's taken out of the way. And then when he's taken out of the way, then this wicked one, if we've got him figured out, Antichrist maybe, then will he be revealed? So now it's like a, it's like a treasure hunt, isn't it? It's like, it's like a, a mystery game. Ah, we've got this one figured out. So if we can figure out who's hindering him, who's hindering this lawlessness, and then whenever that one's gone, then the wicked one's going to come, and we put it all together. So who's the hinderer of lawlessness? I, Paul didn't tell me. So all we can do is just give you theories. Uh, probably one of the most popular theories about that in, in our day and age is people have suggested, well, the Holy Spirit is the hinderer of lawlessness. And then when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, then the, the Antichrist will come. Uh, I, I'm not real fond of that theory because I don't see in reading the book of Revelation where the Holy Spirit really is taken away. I mean, he's got a job. And God is calling for the repentance of people to the very, very last minute. So even though that's been very popular and widely accepted that one of these days the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the world, I'm thinking, why? God's calling people to the repentance uh, throughout the tribulation time and every judgment that's coming is kind of repent, repent. So why would he call them to repentance and there's no Holy Spirit there to help and guide them? So I don't know that that's good. So who else might this be? Who is this hinder of lawlessness? Then another one that's probably not quite so popular that, but it makes more sense to me is the church. The church be taken out of the way because that kind of fear that kind of fits with our theories about the church is going to be taken out before the the antichrist is is revealed. Except for those people who are mid tribbers or post tribbers who thinks the church is going to go through the tribulation, then that doesn't fit them, so they have to go back to the Holy Spirit be taken out. So then nobody has a watertight case about this, who this he is. And furthermore, the argument is made that the church is not a he, the church is a she. So it should have been till she is taken out of the way. See, you just see how much fun we have with messing around with these things? And we go back to Paul. So Paul, you could have done a better job of explaining this. It would have made our life a whole lot easier. And then Paul refers to the great apostasy. And all we can do is say in general terms that Paul is saying that one of these days there's going to come a great falling away. And I've got questions. When? And what I'm seeing in Christianity today, in United States American Christianity, is we're becoming a very soft people. We're becoming a very compromising people. You know what just crushes my heart as a pastor? Uh, the, the people in my circle of acquaintance that attach themselves to the church, attach themselves to Christianity, call themselves Christians, they, they talk the talk, but I know they're not walking the walk. Is this as part of the apostasy that's in the last days where the blindness settles upon the people who want to think that they're Christians, but they're acting like the world? Is this part of it? Is it coming? Or is there going to come a future time when it's going to just make this look like child's play compared to that great falling away? And then I've got all these questions about why would 
there'd be a great falling away. Why? Why would people depart from God when they, they, you know, for all that God is and all that God has to offer, what's, what's, what's the rationale for drifting away from him? Paul talks about it. I got questions about it. And how easy will it be to minister to it during a time whenever there seems to be this great flow going out away from God and not so much flow coming into him? I know one thing. I don't want to be a part of the apostasy. I, I, I want to make efforts to, as the time goes on, to draw a little closer to him, not farther away. And may the Holy Spirit smite our hearts with conviction today if our life is drifting because you are fulfilling some prophecy here on great apostasy. If your heart's not growing closer and warmer towards God than it, rather than drawing farther away and trying to see, how can I live my life and be as compromising and as much like the world as I possibly can and still feel like God's got his hand on me? Don't play that game with God. You'll regret that. Now, let me move to point two. Here's what you should know, but maybe you don't. First of all, it's very clear that Paul addressed end-time events multiple times in these two letters. That's the reason we can say with great confidence and great legitimacy, the theology of of the two Thessalonian letters has to do with comforting them in their struggles and straightening out their their. Uh, eschatology so when he he makes this throughout the two letters constant reference to what it's going to be like in the future more emphasis there than he did in many other letters that he wrote this church really needed to get their end time eschatology in order so but the problem is Paul did not give us a systematic eschatology Theology. He did not teach them a class, a lesson, and say, we're going to start from the ABCs of eschatology, and I'm going to take you all the way through to the most uh, difficult parts of it. And I'm, uh, systematically, we're going to teach you everything. He gave little bits and pieces and just seasoned it through there. Once again, assuming that they would understand in the shortened phrases that he was using, the abbreviated comments he was making, they would make sense out of what he was saying. It left us confused because he did it that way because we don't find a complete systematic theology on end times contained in these two letters. See, here we are getting all these bits and pieces like a jigsaw puzzle that's been scattered on the table and a few pieces missing when you get it put it together. And say, so, well, we don't know what this full picture looks like because we don't have all the pieces. Paul didn't give us all the pieces. First of all, the reason this is so scattered, and, and this is something you want to pay attention to because this is, going to, this is going to upset you greatly, but don't quit church. Most scholars agree that we really don't know what order the two books were written in. I mean, if your case is, in my Bible, it's 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and that must be it, then you've got a weak case. Because we don't know how those people who assembled our Bible uh, always made their decisions on what order to put them in, but we have some indication that it was real popular for them to take the longest letter and put it first. 
and the shortest letter and to put it second just because they had to have some system for doing this and call the longest one the first one and the shortest one the second one. But those who study the two letters to the Thessalonians see some indications that the short one may have been first but they don't have conclusive evidence either way. So with regard to that, you can't say that everything that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians lays the groundwork upon which he builds his case in 2 Thessalonians as though he's given you systematic teaching and theology because we don't even know they're in that order. Maybe he laid down 2 Thessalonians first, which we gave it the name second, and then he wrote the first one. So that's the reason for this piecemeal theology we have. At least that's one of the reasons. And then second, Paul indicates that in these letters, he's, much of what he's telling them is just a refresher course for things he already expected them to know, things that he had taught them when he was with them, or things that he had assurance somebody else had taught them. So not everything in Thessalonians was fresh news to them. Some of it was just, I've already told you this. So let's go back and pick up the fundamentals here. Now one of the things he did, it seems like maybe revealed to them, is about the, uh, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel and trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are living and yet remain shall be caught up together with them. Maybe they didn't quite understand that. So there's a few things he revealed them, but for the most part, he expected them to already know some of this, and they were departing from what they knew. He said, no, no, let's go back. You, I told you this. Don't get confused. So let's go back to the ABCs. Now understand what you should know. First of all, know your salvation has an eschatological nature to it. And, and I know that that statement tends to go, whew. But what I'm saying is your salvation is so closely tied to the significance of the end times. And Paul makes that very apparent in this as he constantly refers to their salvation and what it means in the uh, uh, against the backdrop of the coming of the Lord. Let me give you some examples of this. And then you'll see that every time you read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you'll say, I never saw how Paul saw the doctrine of the coming of the Lord being so closely intertwined with our salvation. The first chapter of Thessalonians, verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serving the living and true God. That's their salvation. And comma, and to wait for his son from heaven for whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Two references to the end time events connected to the fact they got saved. In other words, to him, he, he, Paul felt like it was just logical that when you get saved, your thoughts and your minds ought to immediately and forevermore be on the coming of the Lord. How often do you think of the coming of the Lord? You call yourself a Christian? How important is the coming of the Lord to you? Do you go weeks and never think about it? Do you live your life without thinking about, I'm going to stand before God one of these days? 
How is he going to assess me when I stand before him? See, that ought to dominate your life if you call yourself a Christian. Being aware that he's coming, it's a reality. That ought to dominate your thoughts if you're a born-again Christian. If you're never thinking about that, you need to really push your salvation to another level where you, now I'm saved, now I'm looking for his coming. Looking forward to it, anticipating it. I want to stand before him. Excitedly anticipating the return of Jesus Christ is a vital component of proper salvation. And let me read again. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul tells them, and I'm going to just read a little snippet, that they are called into God's kingdom and glory. See, now when he says that, the kingdom and glory is not just talking about now. The kingdom is now, now is, but not yet. There's two aspects to the kingdom. Uh, Pastor Russell learned this in college. They're very, very fond of this. Now is, but not yet. The two aspects of the kingdom of God. We're in it now, but it's not complete. But we're a part of that whole thing. So recognizing we're in the kingdom means we recognize, we also acknowledge that we're a part of this process where Jesus is going to come and bring the kingdom down. We have a foretaste of it now, but it's coming. So when you, when you give that, you put your salvation in that context and give it that dimension. You are a part of the kingdom that has already been established, but it's not here yet. And so what are we to do? We're to anticipate its fulfillment, its completion. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. This is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians. What's our joy? Our joy is that when the Lord comes, we will glory in the Lord because you got saved. So once again, he's tying it all. He couldn't get this thought of the end of the end times and the coming of the Lord out of his mind. It was he was thinking of it constantly. It was he breathed and ate. The concept of the coming of the Lord, everything about it. Why am I happy you got saved? Well, I'm going to really be rejoicing whenever the Lord comes and everybody finally makes it. Because you have to think about the word saved. We truncate that horribly. Ask your neighbor what truncate means. <laughs> we abbreviate that. We shorten that. We miss the full impact of what it means to be saved. Because right now, we're not completely 100% saved until we get to the end. That's when our salvation is complete. If you want to know what the end, the whole thing about salvation is, it's pulling into port. You're just on the boat now. And the boat's a good place to be. But the boat hasn't pulled into the harbor yet. And your journey's not over, and you're not completely 100% saved until it's in port and you disembarked. So I'm trying to get people, don't jump ship. I'm get, trying to get people, don't be drilling holes in the boat. There's all kinds of concerns about being on the boat. 
And so that's the perspective that Paul has when he's talking about your salvation. It's not the end of it yet. When you say, I am, I am saved, uh, you don't think in terms of you're completed. It's over. You're making your journey, and one day we will be completely saved. So just in case you get too lax, and you get too cocky, and you get to think that it's all signed, sealed, and delivered... Because you went to the altar. I remind you, you're just on a boat. And some of you might be on the Titanic. You got on the wrong boat. You're not on my boat. It's not going down. But you might be on the wrong boat. Your conduct is inseparable from your Christianity. You have to walk the walk. You can't get into this cheap mentality. I go to church. I went to the altar. I can quote scripture verse. I can live anything I want, any way I want to do because it doesn't matter how I live because I said the prayer. You're wrong. And if you don't walk the walk, you're going to die and spend eternity in a devil's hell. And I'm sorry it's that blunt, but I would hate for anybody to go to there and go there and then to point to me and say, you never told me. Ah, uh, you're not going to point to this pastor. Say, you never told me. You, you, you might point at me as you're walking out the door and never come back. <laughs> but you're not going to point at me at judgment day and blame me because you didn't know. God's grace is not a license to live any way you want. Paul laid that out very clearly in the book of Romans. What? If, if uh, sin magnifies grace, then why don't we just sin a whole lot more? That's what Paul said. He said I know what you, Paul said, I know what you're going to ask me next. Well, why don't we just sin so we're going to have lots of grace? And Paul said, no, it's not what grace is about. You can't take advantage of it like that. Here's something you should know. Here's something that Paul said to the Thessalonians. You should know this. It's important to know, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. First Thessalonians 4 describes what happens when Jesus returns. Either they didn't know it or they had forgotten it, or when he taught them, they still had questions about it. So he said, okay, I'm going to lay this out. This is how it happens when the Lord comes. And he says there's two signals, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. The first thing that's going to happen is the dead are going to rise first. I don't know how fast this is going to happen, but they're going to burst forth out of the grave. You know, when Jesus arose from the dead, there were many people that... uh, they burst forth from the grave. The graves were opened. I mean, it, it, was, it was obvious that they were gone. And so we're going to have testimony in this world when the Lord comes that the graves are going to burst open and the dead are going to rise first. If, if there's enough time, we'll see that happen. I don't, it could happen in all of this just in the blink of an eye, just wrap it, but I don't know. But... Uh, if you happen to be visiting a cemetery on that day, this, this will be an interesting sight to behold. 
because even if you're saved, they're going to go first. And you can see that you can say, wow, I, I just feel like something good is about to happen. <laughs> and then you might want to take notice of the graves that didn't open. I'm sure there'll be a number of those too. Paul shared this because they had questions and they had concerns about their deceased loved ones. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do, you, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That, see, that, that set the context for why he was telling them this. They had loved ones who had died and gone on and they were grieving with a, a grief that Paul said, this is, this is not good. I, I want everybody to listen to me carefully. When your loved ones die, it hurts. It really hurts. There may be people here that you've lost your parents. That hurts. There may be some of you here, you've lost your child. That hurts. Of course it does. We are passionate people. We are people of emotion. That hurts. But I'm telling you, when, when you enter into this grief that, that just dominates your life and it destroys you, that's not what God wants for your life. You know why? Because Paul said there is a hope and there is a resurrection. If your loved one died in faith, they're going to come to life again and you'll see them again. And if you're allowing grief to destroy your life, you've got to stop it. You have to stop it. That does not testify of the victorious hope that God has given us. That denies the hope that God has given us. I understand the pain. I understand missing. But you've got you've to latch on to what God has given us to carry us that I'm going to see them again one of these days. Now all the tears are gone. Now I'm just looking forward to that day. That's what God wants for you. It does not glorify him for you to continue to sulk in your despair. You've got to get out of that. There's something more for us because Paul said, I've got to tell you this. People are going, the dead are going to be raised again to life. And he said, I'm telling you this so you can have something to hold on to so you do not grieve like people who have no hope. Now, scholars on this this passage that I read to you, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Scholars will continue to debate the timing of this event. But we generally agree, simply put, that Jesus will return and the dead in Christ will rise and the righteous will follow them. That we agree on. Here's something else you should understand about the wrath of God. Paul writes them in the first chapter, they tell you how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul emphasized that God's wrath is not for his children, but his wrath is that people might obtain salvation who don't know him, who are not his children. So then we go back to our study in Revelation whenever the plagues came, but it only came a part of the world. 
and some were sealed. There were examples of people being sealed and people being hidden. And yes, they, they died because they were martyrs for their faith, but they didn't die because they were subjected to all this tribulation that was coming on the world. That God is zeroing in on the unrepentant to get them to repent. But Paul is trying to tell them, it, you have to understand the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not for his children. The wrath of God is not for believers. The wrath is to turn the wicked back to him. People today make that same mistake. That's the reason it's important to have a good theology about the wrath of God. How many of you have lived your life and you said, well, I guess God's just punishing me right now. And then you followed up with this, but I don't know why. <laughs> Give me a break. You know, if we put that in the context of our family here on earth and the child does something wrong, and they get punished for it, that child would be a fool to say, I, I, I just got the whipping of my life, and I don't have a clue why. You know, I came from an era, if I'd have done anything like that, I just know the nature of my parents. If I'd have done anything like that, I'm going to keep whipping you till you to figure it out. I'll whip some sense into you. You know, about the third round, I know, I know, I know, I know why this is. And for anybody to say, God must be, his, must be angry with me, must be punishing me. I don't have a clue why. Well, here's the problem with that. If you truly don't have a clue why, what kind of God would punish you and not tell you why? So maybe it's not God doing it. Or number two, maybe you're just being stubborn and unwilling to admit that you had it coming and you know exactly why this is coming on you and you need to get it straightened out. One of the two. But don't play this game about God's being mean and he hasn't told me why. That doesn't work. It's important for us to understand God loves his children. And he will correct us. And the correction can be a little painful sometimes. But it's not the wrath of God. There's a difference between correction and the wrath. I, I know that with my parents. I know when they were correcting me, that hurt bad enough. But I knew when dad was angry. I knew that. Oh, my goodness. And I know the difference between anger and loving correction. And the final point is he wanted the Thessalonians to know we should live a life of constant preparedness. Are you ready I, I could ask that question every Sunday that I preach. Are you ready? Are you ready? Or are you just thinking in terms of I'm just kind of floating along in Christianity here and one of these days it's all going to work out and somehow God loves me more than he loves anybody else because he lets me do anything I want. But I want you to just think seriously with me for a moment, would you? If Jesus Christ came in the next minute before I finish my sentence, before I finish this sermon, if Jesus Christ came in the same, and just came and I want to know, are you going to be happy with the way you're going to be standing before him and the way you lived yesterday and the past week and the past month and the way you're planning on living tomorrow because you've got a life pattern? Are you going to be, are you ready? Are you living like you're ready and saying, Lord, come now? Or are you just hoping he catches you on the upswing in your life when he comes? 
Not in that low ebb. Are you living every minute? Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord, what do they know? What should we know? You know it's going to come like a thief in the night. You just don't know when it's going to happen. While people might be saying peace and safety, thinking everything is fine and it's going along great, that's the kind of a time where he says destruction will come on them suddenly like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. All those are some unsettling words. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. He's saying that with hope in his heart. I hope you're not in darkness. You should not be in darkness. You must not be in darkness that that day would surprise you like a thief. In other words, if you're living prepared, a, li a prepared life, it doesn't make any difference when he comes. One minute, one day, one week, or one year, if you're living every moment of your life like he might come, that day will not sneak up on you and cause you any pain and heartache. But if you're trying to time it just right, so you say, I've got a lot of life to live. When I get older and I mellow a little bit, maybe I'll settle into what God truly wants me to be. You're gambling with your life, and you don't want to pay that debt if you lose that gamble. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, spiritually asleep. Let us be awake and sober. You know what it means to be spiritually asleep? You're not ready. That's what it means. But he says, let us be awake. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk in the night. But since we belong to the day, are you a child of God? Are you a born-again child of God? Then you can say, I am a child of the light. I am a child of the day. I should live like I'm a child of the light. I should live like a child of the day. I should not live like those who get drunk in the night. I should live like I am sober, like I am awake, like I'm in love with Jesus, like I'm ready for him to come, like I'll have nothing to apologize for if I stand before him in the next five minutes. That's the way God wants you to live your life. So therefore, we belong to the day. Be sober. Put on your faith, love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Sounds like Ephesians, doesn't it? He liked that little example, that little illustration. A good theology of eschatology inspires us. We ought to live every single day as though it is our last. When we grow lax or weary, it's only because our theology is weak. We've got a bad theology. Where is the coming of the Lord? All things can continue as they were from the beginning. He's not coming today. He's not coming next week. I know he's coming soon. He's coming one day, but it's not going to be this week. We haven't had Christmas yet. You don't know that. Could be today. Theology must govern your lifestyle. Otherwise, all you have, friend, is head knowledge. And you have no practical application of what you believe. If you truly believe he could come any minute, my question is, are you living like that as a reality? Bow your heads.